0: So a few weeks ago, we began looking at rest that is rooted in Scripture and in the nature and in the actions of God. And the quality of the rest of your life will be determined by the quality of the rest in your life. It's a little bit of a refresh. We've seen that God rests. Almighty God stops and rests, and He doesn't rest because He's tired. He rests because... It's part of who he is, and out of his stillness and rest explodes this infinite power, genius, creativity, and then out of rest, in that place of rest, is enjoyment and delight, and just the ability to take it all in. And then from there comes the point of connection, being able to bring all these things together. Don't lock it; they've got to, parents who've got to head back in. Okay, cool. Um. And then from that comes that which is sacred and holy. Rest is declared. Not just the Sabbath, but rest itself, including the Sabbath, uh, is declared and, and blessed and made holy. And then we looked at uh, rest. So we see rest out of creation, but we also see rest as a command in Deuteronomy chapter 5, uh, where we, we, we get to... Uh, suspend rest, and all. one of the things is that it becomes a place in which not only is God worshipped, and God is not giving us arbitrary rules in which he wants to steal away our joy, but he uses law to restrain evil and the exploitation and harm to others. And and while rest is this place of chosen stillness, it, it is something that replenishes, restores, and refreshes us and so we see that we get to stop our work because our sense of value and worth comes from God, both in creation and redemption, and not from what we do and earn. If, if my value comes from what I do or from what I earn, I can never stop. But if my value comes from God who has made me in his image and who loves me enough to redeem me, then I can pause from my work because his love and value never stops. Too many of us have bought the lie that our value is determined by what we produce instead of by the love that God gives so freely and graciously. But what we see is that love, I mean, rest is also a radical form of social justice and actually warfare. And we looked at this We get to share the Sabbath. All power relations are suspended for a day. And listen to the tape on last week, so I don't re-preach it. Um, But God knows that when we don't rest, we force others to keep working. When we don't rest, we force others to keep working. And, and the oppression, especially of, to the poorest of the poor and the most vulnerable, the maidservant and the mad servant and the, and the alien, they can't stop working because we won't rest. And so it becomes an oppressive form of injustice when we are determined to continue our lives and not make a day sacred. Now this isn't about Sunday observance, this is about understanding the principles of rest and why God has woven this into life as we know it. And then we saw rest as warfare and this conflict um, with Pharaoh that is referenced in Deuteronomy chapter 5, in which we see that the Sabbath overthrows the enemies of God and represented in this case by Pharaoh, where demonic spiritual forces, and it's very clear in the text, those are the powers that are in play there, find agreement with human spirits who wish to control and enslave others. And so the warfare of God is to establish rest and break this relentless manipulation and control of people that gives them no break. And when we find rest, And when we give others rest, we break the power of the Spirit determined to control and wreck people's lives. And we break our agreements, and in breaking those agreements and living in a different spirit, we defeat the enemies of God. Again, go listen to the sermon. I haven't got time (laughs) to re-preach it. But these are really key principles around rest. Rest is not just a nice-to-have. It is a critical framework for healthy spirituality, healthy relationships, healthy community, healthy society. Now, what do we want to do this week, then, is to go on um, and explore a little bit more How this rest is true to the nature of God and opposite to the power of of obsessive work or escapism and the inability to rest. You see, there are people who want to control others, and so they partner with the spirit that dominates, exploits, and they find themselves without love or without compassion. And what we'll see this week is they can turn this Sabbath command, this very command intended for good, into a legalism that entirely misses the purpose for which God gave it. Some of the biggest fights Jesus had was on the question of Sabbath and rest. Why? Because people were still partnering with the spirits of the the pharaohs to control, exploit, and dominate others, except they were using this command... (laughs) as a form of oppression. So it's crazy. Sometimes you can appear externally compliant. <laughs> you can do, you can be meticulous. You can even build a fence so that you make sure you don't even go close to breaking Sabbath law, and you can utterly violate the God who made Sabbath and Sabbath itself. So now you are got to kind of live with this. Oh, this is getting quite interesting because... These people are claiming that they are upholding the law, and Jesus will tell them, you're violating the one who gave it. And so we will see some Pharisees, a strict religious sect, that were obsessed with compliance with the letter of the law, deliberately plan the murder of Jesus because he exposed their hard-hearted legalism on this matter. So they fight for the fourth commandment, and they happily plan to break the sixth one. You shall not murder. You must know that you confront confronted with a hectic legalistic spirit. So nothing we do in this thing of rest is to put legalism on us. Because that's where it ends. It ends now using the rules of rest to try and control people again. Instead of walking people into the place of freedom. So let's go and meet the Lord of rest. The Lord of Sabbath. His name is Jesus. And our passage is at the end of Mark chapter 2. We read in verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields. And as his disciples walked along... They began to pick some ears of corn. And the Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And he answered, have you never read, by the way, that's a stinging rebuke to the Pharisees who claim to read their Bible. Have you never read (laughs) what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priest to eat, and he also gave some to his mates. Then Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Key, key principle. Remember, the commands are given because there's something God values that he is upholding and honoring. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Wow. Then into chapter 3, we see another time Jesus went into the synagogue. By the way, in in all three Gospels, these are all grouped together together. And we'll come to Matthew 11 going into chapter 12, and chapter 12 carries this, these set of stories with a little bit more detail, but I'm keeping to like the, the briefer script here. So there's parallel passages in Luke 6 and in Matthew chapter 12. So Jesus went into a synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. And some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would do his day job. That's what he was supposed to do, you know, walk around and heal people. So they thought that was his work, to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. So he kind of puts this man on display in front of everyone, and then Jesus turns to the crowd and he asks them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or evil, to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. Jesus looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. I mean, stubborn hearts said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. And everyone cheered and clapped and started shouting, hallelujah. We were wrong. We missed the boat. This is the guy. He is the business. Uh, No, then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. The Herodians were the Jewish collaborating ruling class working with the oppressive power of Rome, the pharaohs of the day. Now, our passage has two brief scenes, they're held together by two simple sentences ...that are loaded with dynamite. So let's jump in. The first scene one, the disciples are walking through probably between the pathways. You know, it's not like a giant freeway and there's barbed wire fences and everything like that. Just walking the pathways um, between the fields and they start pulling some of the ears of corn. Luke 6 verse 1 tells us that as they rubbed off the corn, they had to kind of chafe it in their hands... And then they had this little snack, which um, was permitted in those days because the edge of the field was precisely there. If you had to go into the field and start harvesting, that would be wrong. The edge of the field was for gleaning. It was for everyone to be able to go, thank you, God. You've provided. And and this is not the fruit of work. This is regarded as a way to care for everyone. So they, they were walking along in simple delight, And it's made possible by the genius of God that food grows, that wealth grows, that things multiply, sow a seed, and stuff happens, and suddenly where you had nothing, out of a seed comes something, and they're walking along, and they're going, isn't this just amazing? And so they help themselves to a snack. God placing his incredible supply at their disposal. But the Pharisees take offense. They deem this to be work and therefore breaking the Sabbath. And so Jesus points to David and what David did when he and his companions were hungry. They were given and they ate consecrated bread, which was only lawful for the priest's the law reserved that for the priests. And so what Jesus is showing is when there's genuine human need, any interpretation of the law that oppresses people and denies them meeting their genuine human need, you can't use the law to do that. He's showing them not, not a trick in the Bible, an exception. He's showing them a legitimate framework for understanding how the law was meant to be applied. We see in Matthew's gospel that Mark has summarized the answer Jesus drew other examples from the Old Testament and even says this at one point something or someone greater than the temple is here. That's a staggering statement someone greater than the temple is here, meaning the one who occupies the temple is here. He also says, if you knew the meaning of this statement, I desire compassion, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. We wouldn't even be having this argument. And so when we are in a place where, where, where God's mercy is, is uh, defining the reality, we will not find ourselves stuck in a one-dimensional theology obsessed with controlling the behavior of people. Now, I'm not saying the Bible does not have ethical force and tell us how to live, but I am saying it doesn't become a tool in our hands in which we try and control the behavior of others. So that was scene number one. Scene number two, there's the healing of a shriveled and powerless hand. So they go into the synagogue And Jesus knows what's going on. He knows he's being watched. He knows this is a kind of highly charged environment. But even as he's in that space, he deliberately creates and he kind of goes after it. And he sets up a confrontation. And he wants to take on the oppressive interpretation that does this. The one is it denies legitimate human need. The other is that it prevents ministry and healing. When stuff gets in the way of ministry, ask yourself a question. What's wrong with my theology? Because if you get a whole lot of rules that you've put in place that stop you caring and ministering to people in the name of Jesus, something's gone wrong with the theological umbrella that you're trying to put over this thing. Now, notice this is an aside, by the way. We only have one record in which Jesus ever delayed a healing. And technically speaking, that wasn't a healing. Anyone know when Jesus delayed? He kind of said, God's going to get glorified by a delay. Lazarus. And come next week and find out why in the evening service. But I can just briefly say this, um, because we're looking at Jesus constructs that whole encounter. And it's one of the only places he does it. But he makes an I am statement, I am the resurrection and the life, knowing Lazarus is dead for four days, which was very significant in the culture of the day. And then does the miracle to prove the statement, I am the resurrection and the life. No other time does he delay healing. Why do I say that? Because sometimes we get pastorally fuddled. And we think that God wants us to suffer on and on for some reason of his greater glory. If you're going to be raised from the dead in four days' time, be my guest. But there's no other example in Scripture in which God is the active, willing agent of your ongoing suffering. And in this instance, Jesus could have waited till sunset. Just a couple of hours. They normally used to meet around about midday. It's a little bit before midday. He could have waited six, seven, eight hours and caused no offense. Jesus was unwilling to delay even that because he wants his heart as a healer and a redeemer to be seen and known by all. So just pastorally, be careful of assigning our real delays. I'm not denying they don't happen. To, to some kind of divine agency, like God purposed that. If you want to know what God's like, look at how Jesus goes after healing and refuses to wait a couple of hours. And then he asks them this question. Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or evil? To save life or to kill? Now, you, know, you must know you're dealing with theologians when you kind of go, is God good? And they go, um, this must be a trick question. Uh, let, let, let me think about it. What's the context, etc. cetera? And, and the reality is, is that any kid at Sabbath school could have given you the answer. The answer is God is good and you do good no matter any time. And the other thing is to save life. In other words, to rescue, to redeem. And God is good and God is a redeemer. And To save this man from his suffering and from his disability. And so what any kid in Sunday school could have answered, they, they refuse to answer. They are deliberate in their silence. And Jesus sees their hearts... As stubborn, and he's grieved, and he burns with anger and indignation. Remember, he's not wrestling with flesh and blood; he knows the spirit that's controlling them. So this is a power encounter—a power encounter between a spirit that would hold hold a man in sickness and in disability, and the Son of God who is coming. This is a deliberately constructed encounter with the spirit and the power of darkness and the darkness that holds a whole group of people to a certain era of legalism and so Jesus commands the disabled man to stretch out his hand and as he does so now I mean I don't know it's quite hard to think about how neurologically this works you know the, the man's being told and he has to activate his will somehow And if I'm going to scratch my head, somehow, even if that seems completely instinctive, a signal has been sent to do it. This man has probably for years been sending signals, and they just haven't sent the right instructions to his hand. His hand won't obey it. Nothing does it. There's something in him that had a partner with what Jesus was telling him. He had to stretch out his hand. And so he thinks the thought that would say to his hand, come on, do this now. And suddenly he finds that what he couldn't do before, he suddenly can do. And his hand stretches out and is fully strengthened and recovered. And he's healed right there. Crazy he gets healed in church. It it happens. It happens. (laughs) And as this happens, three things. Firstly, his hand is healed and restored. The second thing is Jesus' authority and theology is vindicated by an act of power from heaven. You you go argue now, (laughs) which is lawful, (laughs) to do good or evil, to heal or not. And if Jesus was out of line, now it's interesting that in Matthew 12, this goes straight into them accusing Jesus of being empowered by Satan himself. Jesus warns against blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, which is to ascribe to the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit demonic origins. This is heaven vindicating the teaching of Jesus. The third thing that happens is the Pharisees form a murderous pact with those who collaborate with their oppressors, the Herodians and the Romans. So. The Herodians, Herod, served at the pleasure of the Romans, and between them, they held Israel in utter bondage. You begin to partner with the spirit that holds people in profound bondage, and yes, the politics and the social structure and the personal experience is all embedded inside this narrative as was when Moses was confronting Pharaoh. And notice this, they willingly partner because they want control. They willingly partner because they want control. And what Jesus is doing is threatening the theology that gives them that control. Hectic stuff. Don't think when you try and take a day off that the only force that you have to overcome is your diary. Don't think when you try and take a day off that the only thing you have to overcome is a little bit of planning. Let me tell you there's an enemy and a system that wants to keep you stuck. And, and recycling your life that has no rest. This is warfare. You know it. You know how hard it is to break the anxiety and the fear that wants to crawl all over you when you try and take a genuine rest. It's warfare. And Jesus explains... Two things. So there's two statements. The first is this, that the Sabbath was made for people and not people for the Sabbath. God didn't have the idea of Sabbath and then go, I need someone to keep this Sabbath. (laughs) He made people and said, let me give them a gift. The gift of peace. The gift of shalom. The gift of rest. To pause, to enjoy, to delight, to connect, to worship is a gift to be received, not a burden you have to carry or a curse that crushes you with its rules. Sabbath is for you. It's like God's good, wonderful gift. That he wants you to live without anxiety and fear and stress and being overwhelmed by the pressures of life. And so he has a rhythm that will discipline you to receive the good gift of God. It's made for you. And I don't think the, 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 the metaphor inside the miracle is incidental. Our lives become shriveled and powerless when we fail to rest. And the signals we try and send to act are frustrated. Our lives become shriveled and powerless when we fail to rest. When we get trapped inside legalistic guilt. Rest then loses its freedom, becomes more laws, and the enemy seeks to blame and control us. And Jesus just overthrows this power. It's an imposter posing as religion. You see, Sabbath is a command given precisely because it's in the nature of God, and it's in the value that God has put in every human being. I promise you rest is the best gift (laughs) that you can actively receive in a weekly way, in a daily way. And if you have to fight for it, start fighting. Jesus fought for it in this passage. Don't be afraid to fight for your rest. Trust him. Receive your freedom, your rest, because the Sabbath was made for you. It's a gift from God. And then Jesus says this, so the Son of Man, speaking of himself, is Lord even of the Sabbath. Wow. This is an incredible statement with massive Christological implications, meaning Jesus is making staggering claims about himself because Sabbath, of course, is rooted in the nature and the actions of God. If Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus is claiming to be God. We do have to recognize the identity of this man. Interesting, he's also man. He calls himself the son of man, which translated elsewhere in Scripture, could simply mean human being. It's both unique and representative, this title. And he's Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is the Lord of rest. Moses discovered, and they sang the song, that Yahweh is a warrior, our God. When they defeated Pharaoh, they saw God go to war for them. Be still and watch how God will give you. You don't need to fight. Watch what God will do for you. They've seen God as a warrior. They've seen God as a contender, as a fighter. But they also get to discover that the God who fights for them is the God of rest. And Jesus is claiming to be the Lord of Sabbath, the Lord of rest. And he is linking his lordship with the release of peace and rest into people's lives. And he does this by drawing on this title, Son of Man, which is a messianic vision of the prophet of Daniel in chapter 9. I haven't got time, but in which the Son of Man faces the judgment seat of God. And in that place, he is vindicated before the judgment seat of God. This is describing what happened on the cross. And as the ultimate representative, he then causes his people to reign on the earth. That's Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 9. You can go and read it. But let's let's come to our apex. (sighs) Maybe the worship team can come up so long. We've seen that this command to rest has two fundamental theological foundation underpinning realities. And you can ask the geotech engineer how important geological underpinning is. But, you know, this has got to rest firmly. The first is we've seen it in creation. Rest is rooted, gifted, And made known and shared through creation. And secondly, from redemption. So see the parallel. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, it says this. All eyes on me. Watch me. God finished the work. The last thing he did was make Adam and Eve in his own image. And then together they rested. The first thing man did when God finished creation, was rest with God. Adam and Eve (laughs) didn't have to help. They didn't have sleeves to roll up, but they didn't need to do (laughs) nothing. Out of creation, their first day was to step into the finished work of God and look around them and go, God, you did all this for me. You did all this for us. You have done everything in creation. Because you've done it all, we can rest and enjoy creation. All eyes on me. Redemption. In the person of Jesus Christ, God has finished the work of redemption. You don't get to add a thing to what he has done. He has shed his blood on the cross. He has paid for our sin. He has made our freedom possible in the the metaphor of Exodus. He is the Passover lamb whose blood was spilt and put on the doorway of your home and mine, your life and mine, so that when the angel of harm and death would come by, you will not be touched. You will be redeemed. That is what he's done for you. And on the cross, he cried out, It is finished. Your rest is a gift that comes from the cross. You see, creation and redemption, between that came our fall, our lost. State. And so it's no longer that we can take for, ex- for granted what creation has done. We have to own, accept, receive redemption by faith. Trusting Him and what He has done. And so 1 Peter 2 verse 24 and 25 says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sins And live for righteousness, for as as was prayed unknowingly in the prayer meeting beforehand, by his wounds, by his wounds, you have been healed. Then picking up on the imagery of Psalm 23, which tells us we can restore rest in green fields and restore our souls. He says this, for you are like sheep going astray, imaging uh, Isaiah 53, but you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer. Of your souls. Creation. Finished. Beautiful. In all human existence. None of us have added. To creation. (laughs) That's how great the power of God was. On that very first moment. In which he introduced everything that is. By the power of his spoken word. Let there be light. Out of stillness came the power promise you, nothing can be added to your redemption either. And so what is our response is to step into the work that God has done on our behalf. And rest and Sabbath will escape us and elude us until we place our trust in the God who would never control you, in the God who would never exploit you, in the God who would never abuse you or leave you or abandon you but in the God who has given his life for you. So we want to just step into the ministry of that God, and the worship team is going to lead us further.